the big book refers to God in a couple of places, I think, is a, the great reality. And when we see reality clearly, we, we are intensely aware of both the suffering that occurs in life from an ego perspective because uh-huh. of our attachments and aversions. At the same time, we are aware of the, just the enchantment of life, that it is such a beautiful uh, experience to be having. And gratitude naturally arises from that. I'm going to run down kind of the five facets and then we'll go back. And I want to let you just kind of comment about each one as you will, whatever comes to heart, mind, and gut for you. So the first one is, does the process provide a way to recognize old fear-based patterns? Okay. Talk a little bit about that one. Well, I think that's kind of just what we're talking about, Art, is is it a way to get deeper underneath what is the energy behind the pattern? As we know, that one of the things that sets apart the Enneagram's understanding of personality is it helps us understand where the energy comes from, which motivates conduct in our life, behavior in our life. And so if we can begin to see where that energy is coming from, it's if this energy is coming from me because, uh, you know, as a, as a one, I need to try to get things perfect. Or as a two, I need to help others so I'll feel okay. Or as a three, I need to go out and do uh, aspirational talks for people so I'll get affirmed. Mm-hmm. You know, or four, am I doing something creative so everybody knows how unique I am? You know, the five focus on on getting facts so that. Uh, but at the same time, the heart stays closed. Yep. Yeah. Got to master something intellectually. So the five will feel a little bit safer about coming back into life in some way. Right. Yes. But not get too close. <laughs> not get too close. Yeah. Right. And, and of course, six and sevens, what we've been talking about, you know, they always say that you just got to scratch it seven a little bit and there's a six underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the same idea that within that, uh, triad, you know, there's that fear and anxiety that, that is underneath all of the patterns. You know, I, I, I collect, I collect corny jokes, um, from 12, from recovery and then uh-huh. and now Enneagram. And, and my wife says, those are just dad jokes. Quit doing that. And by the way, folks, do you know how you could tell if it's a dad joke? Well, it's a parent. Okay. All right. So, uh, so, uh, she, uh, we're going to have, Ronnie, we're going to have to cut this out if Carrie's going to listen. Okay. So, uh, so the, I love the corny recovery jokes. I mean, it's just part of our tradition and lure, but, you know, now I'm collecting the Enneagram one. To, you know, Don, why sixes are afraid of sevens? Because, why? because six saw seven, eight, nine. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. Okay. My favorite saying in recovery, we, we made shirts up for our group. Okay. When (laughs) was that, uh, now that you've taken my inventory for me, would you mind making my amends too? 
then and then we got another one. We said, "Warning, uh, I have character defects, and I'm not afraid to use them." Yeah, yeah, which is really my former life. You know, unconsciously, I had them, didn't know it, and I was using them all the time. Right, all the time. Yeah. yeah. All right. So the first facet is the simplest one in a way, although most of us don't see it until there's a critical mass of suffering or a bottom. We we don't go looking typically for character defects or what we're calling these old fear-based patterns, right? That we adapted. And so where am I going to go? Does my wise adult decision-making process have a way to teach me how to look for those in myself? Right. So the, the bottom line of that is without some ability to look and, and see what that underlying pattern is about the, in the energy of it. And so if it's fear energy and I'm getting ready to make this decision about whether to do X or Y and, and I realize I'm aware enough to realize, Hey, I'm, I'm holding back, uh, for some reason. If I can go inside and in, in an interior sense, get in touch with the energy of that and it will either dissipate or I will have some clarity that it's real, that undertaking that course of action is dangerous for some reason to health or, or something. And I will be in a better situation to make a, uh, a good decision about it. Yeah. At the same time, I know that most of the time the fear underneath that is because of those habitual patterns from my childhood. And once I experience it, it dissipates and there's nothing there. There's nothing really to be afraid of. Yeah. And so the six in that state can then actually pull the trigger on their decisions without the fear that it's going to irreparably damage them or somebody they love and they'll never be able to correct it. Right. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. So, um, does the process provide a way for me to recognize my old fear-based patterns? And so of course, both Enneagram and 12 step are really good at that. And as you say, the Enneagram's depth and nuance that can come underneath with motivation and adds adds such a robustness to the fourth and fifth step and then six and seven in the 12 steps. And so um, once you recognize the patterns, though, the work's just beginning, right? So the yes. second dynamic just says, does this wise decision, adult decision-making process teach a way to implement a pause so that the old pattern is interrupted, right? And so I immediately, as a 12-stepper, I'm like, oh, well, that's the 10th step, and oh, that's halt, H-A-L-T, or heart, H-E-A-R-T, or stop, or whatever. So talk to us about the second phase. Well, for me, what comes to mind now is is two of the uh, most important ways for me have been a centering prayer practice, uh, you know, and the steps referred to as meditation. Uh, some way in which by sitting on a daily basis and learning how to let go of thoughts and feelings uh, and sensations, the body becomes used to opening up that gap where there's an opportunity for uh, this kind of reflection, the pause, so that the old pattern doesn't unfold automatically. All right, why don't you say that again? 
not only because our Zoom crackled a little bit, because I think it's crucial when you said about the body opening up. Can you can you repeat that? Well, the body has to be able to learn to not be on such a hair trigger. And I think particularly for us as mental types, that's true, although I know it's really true for, for some body types and heart types too. Uh, so the the meditation practice, or in my case, the centering prayer practice, is what has given me the opportunity to experience that that space before the neurological trigger occurs and the cascade of neurochemicals goes off and, and you're into reactivity and not response. Yeah. Now, what I would say also is that the most important practice I know of, for me at least, uh, when the response is already in motion is a welcoming prayer practice. Yeah, love that one. And the welcoming prayer practice, which actually goes back to the three centers yep. where, where you let go of power, control, esteem, and affection, security, and survival, uh, and, and provides a pause as the tr- trigger is already starting to unfold. But it's it's still very effective. Yeah, and, and uh, because it is, uh, it's trying to, the prayer itself is trying to engage the three centers. Yes, because I've I've got a breathing practice that goes with it and a body practice that goes. So it's trying to integrate all that human beings were made to experience in the world. The way we perceive, take in meaning through the head, heart, and the gut unconsciously, and then try to make meaning and then try to translate it and relate it back out into the world. And so the welcoming prayer is just one of many ways that we can try to bring the head and the heart and the gut into our spiritual practices. Does that make sense? Yes, and in in the moment, but it starts with the really with the body, which gets us present. Good, you know. Yeah, it, it's it's welcoming the divine indwelling spirit into the sensation in the body that has been caused by the emotional trigger. That's that's really good because I know for me personally, um, as a Let's see, how would I describe it? So I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, in the South, in the Bible Belt, uh, on, as they say, on the buckle, kind of. But uh, So I don't ever remember a time in my life uh, that I didn't believe in the God of the Scriptures, okay? Uh, by that, I mean, I, in the womb, I was being carried into the church of my youth by, by my mother, who was a nursery worker, and my father, who was a deacon, right? So we're going, and it's been growing up three times a week, at least four times a week in the church. So I don't ever remember a, a not having a mental assent to the God of the Bible. Uh, however, I do uh, lots of things going on, of course, but it, growing up, I don't really remember much from a spiritual standpoint or a church standpoint where there was much of an emphasis about body being good or helpful as much as it seemed to be talked about as being bad, harmful, or in the way. Now, it could be that I just didn't learn what was taught well and right, or maybe I actually learned a lot really well that wasn't pretty helpful. It wasn't until I got out of town and and out of the area and happened to be in a training uh, in the, the Northeast where there were 60-some-odd people doing some training work for recovery coaching and that type of thing. And I noticed a lot of the people in there from other parts of the world and the country that were in recovery 
talked a lot about how body practices had not only gotten them sober, but kept them growing. And so I, I missed a lot of that around here. I, I, again, it may have been taught well, and I just didn't pick it up. But in, in, it seems, for the most part, in Western Protestantism, or, or an Americanized version of it anyway, the body is not regarded as a help. Is that Have you run into that at all? Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think not only, I agree with you, it's very present in the South historically, but also very present you know, from the kind of Puritan tradition that uh, occurred as the country was founded, that the body is evil and, you know, is, is not, a, it's, it's not viewed really as the temple, uh, you know, and so it's, it's uh, kind of a, a reflection of the way each of the three centers has a negative tradition that is carried with it. You know, uh, and so the body center, which is so important to being present and uh, really grounded in one's life, uh, has this whole negative tradition of, of not being something where you can access the immediacy of God. And so we have the same thing similar with the, uh, the head and the heart. You know, we have the tradition of you can't get too caught up in your head. You can't get too into fantasizing or, or, or whatever in the danger of that. Uh, and then, you know, you have the Ignatian tradition of the St. Ignatius exercises, which are all about using the imagination yeah. uh, in a positive way. Yeah. And, and similarly, also with the heart, of course, the, the ways in which we can get emotionally uh, too carried away and that scene is negative as, a, as opposed to really understanding the practices that are going to open the heart. Yeah. So each, each center carries a tradition of negativity with it that sometimes makes it difficult for people who have been caught up in that historically in their lives to get to the good part of what that center is that is really so essential. And, and again, uh, with this second dynamic, does it teach a way to implement a pause so that the old pattern is interrupted? In other words, going from reactivity to, to real response. Again, what you just said is uh, it goes right back to the simplicity, the one in the three and the three in the one. We're trying to engage all three of our centers, all three of what it means to be fully human in essence, head, heart, and body in the process of interrupting the the old pattern, the bringing the pause to play, right? Yes. I mean, I could just read the words halt, right? If I'm hurting or hungry or angry or lonely or tense or tired, however you want to think about it, I can certainly remind my, okay, there's a, there's a mnemonic right there just with the acrostic of halt right there. And God seems to have been brilliant in the way he gave his people these memory things, right? The the 119th Psalm in Hebrew is actually a massive acrostic. As, as, as English-speaking <laughs> Americans, we wouldn't have any way of knowing that that was originally a mnemonic for the Hebrew people, right? And so, but we have all those embedded, and our Creator knows how we remember things in melody and rhyme, in song and poetry, music and senses, but 
okay, some of it is reading and there's this acrostic and it, okay, if nothing else, I can remember that. Maybe that'll pause me a little bit. But the whole idea of what you're saying is so much richer and purer and more robust and how we were intended to operate, which is reconnecting to head, heart, and body uh, in a very spiritual way, inviting the Spirit of God to be present there and to unite those so that we then have the potential that time to respond out of newness rather than uh, reacting out of the old pattern, right? Yes. And the, the important thing I think we, we, we've touched on is that everybody probably has some tradition in their life, whether it's head, heart, or body, which uh, casts a negative veil on actually being able to be grounded in those centers. And so if you know that, just like knowing your, you know, your, your false self structure through your Enneagram type, um, that's helpful. That's that awareness can help you be able to let go of that. However, that's going to be an impediment to your integrating those three centers. That's a good point because there's often cultural overlays or family of origin issues or trauma or bad teaching or we got a good teaching and I didn't understand it, and it may have uh, diminished our ability to even connect to one of those centers or, or two of them. And so I think of it in terms of the idea that my dominant center unconsciously, you know, through the mental, uh, has then in conspiracy co-opted the body <laughs> and the heart got left behind a little bit. And so the think-do process in sevens think – the emotions get wrapped in there, but not processed well. And the next thing I know I'm doing something, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And so the heart, you know, uh, never comes into play to really touch into what the values are in your life related to the decision. Ooh, that's so good. And right there, you're right back to truth, beauty, and goodness, right? If it, if truth doesn't lead to to a higher good to good, then truth by itself it will 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 kill us sometimes, and I think yeah. Jesus was trying to point that out to us that the higher good supersedes the truth every time. I desire mercy, not judgment, right? And if you knew what that means, you and I wouldn't be arguing all the time. He would say to people, right? Go go see if you understand this. I know you can quote it. He would say, but go find out what it actually means, and then you and I wouldn't be opposing each other all the time. You could say that one of the goals of the head center is emptiness. Yeah. You know, is, is to be able to, to see the world, to see the truth of reality without it being filtered through our own uh, type structure. And in, and once that, once you have that clarity, then what actually happens is the heart center and the body center really automatically click in. Yeah. You're automatically present and you're open to where the, the heart meaning is for you. Yeah. Which, which leads us back to beauty, right? Uh -huh. You, yeah. you on your site, I think I remember this when you were talking about the reflection guides, you had uh, three quotes and I'm a little slow, but I finally figured out one was for the head. One was for the heart and one <laughs> was for the body. And the one from Simone Vuel, I think was the one you used about beauty where she talks about that the divine, the creator, uh, most often traps us with beauty, that it uses beauty yeah. to capture us, to bring us into the breath. Does that make sense? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I was actually sitting with someone a few weeks ago that was struggling with, uh, some things in life, but mainly, um, struggling with the, I would say the, um, maybe, uh, location in terms in, in, uh, the church. Uh, and, and he said, you know, um, it seems bereft of beauty here. And so there was something about their experience that seemed to be, that was draining them. And they were considering, which shocked me, the possibility that they might actually look for another place to worship because there was something, there was a big deficit for them wherever they were in terms of beauty. And at this point in their life, that seems to really be the thing that's trying to draw them back deeper. So it's not, not surprising, I suppose. All right, so um, we, we talked about we got to recognize the old patterns. We talked about does, it, does this process help us implement the pause to interrupt the pattern just long enough uh, as Victor Frankl said, there's a gap there, and in the gap is freedom. You can actually choose to be different. You can think, feel, and do differently if you want to, right? And then this, the third one, which is the one that was the most foreign to me, is does the process teach acceptance of the negative emotions that actually underlie the pattern in the first place? And I remember reading that, I'm like, okay, what is this strange teaching I've never heard before? Acceptance of the negative emotions. Can you talk about that one? Yeah, this gets back to the fact that, you know, you, what you said earlier, what we resist persists uh, in this pattern of awareness, acceptance, and action, which we often hear as a, as a pattern to way to address what is, uh, you know, underneath our, our behaviors and so forth. Uh, the difficult part is, is the acceptance. Uh, you know, it's, it's a long road oftentimes to become aware, <laughs> but once we become aware, uh, our, you know, superego jumps in there and can kind of condemns us for being the way we are <laughs> or the way our false self tends to respond in certain situations. And so, uh, the acceptance of it is what frees up the energy so that grace can come in there and, and help resolve it for us. Yeah. So with, without acceptance of it, it's, it's really, it's really a place that's going to stay stuck a little knotted part in our emotional structure. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. Cause I think again, in, in trios and so fight flight or freeze. And so when I notice the pattern, as you said, I might can halt it, but then if I'm not, you know, if, if I'm not really conscious, then the ego or that super ego, the inner critic, uh, says, "Okay, I'll take over again, right?" And I'll either going to fight it by by beating you to death, beating you up about it, right, thinking that'll change me, or I'm going to run from it in the opposite direction and instead of acceptance, really ignore it in a way, or I just freeze up, right? So there's kind of three reactions that can come, and none of those threes are healthy. None of them take us deeper. They just are kind of natural efforts at uh, defeating the pattern rather than that for this third thing we're talking about, which is how do I learn how to accept that negative emotion and quit trying these other strategies? And that, right. that was really, for me, I, I honestly don't think I had seen the clarity of that as well before, partially because I think 
I was over relying on my mind, even when I discovered the patterns. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's often what we try to do is, is avoid one of the centers, you know, and, and for us, it's often the feeling center, uh, about, you you know, I I don't want to feel bad. I don't want, want to experience it. But the thing that happens most often, uh, certainly for the mental types in this idea of acceptance is we get in there and try to, uh, create greater understanding we think in our heads about what it is we're accepting. Yeah. We, we go off on a mental trip about it. We try to rationalize why we did it or, or, or whatever justified in some way, as opposed to simply feeling the sensation that is in the emotion. Yeah. And it's, it really takes some practice to be able to get to the place of actually doing acceptance is my experience. Yeah, I agree totally. I mean, my sponsor used to tell me all the time, you, he said, you talk a lot about your feelings, but I don't think you're actually feeling them. And, yeah. and sevens can use, I mean, you know, most of us think we're really clever and glib and we got a lot of words and we we're fast. Right. And so he said, you, you talk, he calls me a volume talker. So I was like, wow, he just slipped the knife in on that one. But uh, the wounds of a friend are faithful, so I forgave him. And he's right. And sevens, especially as mental types, uh, quick mental types with, with a lot of volume, a lot of words, can describe and talk about their feelings, but actually feeling them when they come or going back in the old step work, you got to feel the feelings. you got to revisit some of those you never – almost like a three in some ways that – have this magical ability to let the uh, emotions come sliding by in the moment so that they can achieve or be efficient, but then never go back to them. And seven has a little bit different way of evading them, but part of the recovery work was you got to go back and feel some of those. Now, like you said earlier, that really in the first stages in, in early recovery really needs probably be in the presence of, of a safe other. Because yes. a lot of that work by ourselves will take us down if we're we're in that we get down that black hole we can't get out if we're by ourselves. Does that make sense? I think that's really important. You know, uh, if one is just trying to experience an acceptance of the feeling, uh, it's not unusual for an image of from really early childhood to arise, or an image of trauma or violence to arise in that context. And, and so you do need some real safety guardrails, uh, when you're learning how to do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember going to a breakout or recovery conference one and two, uh, folks that had, uh, decades of addiction, but then decades since of recovery and as therapist, uh, and do a lot of work with body work and, uh, do work with, um, uh, meditation and prayer and feeling feelings and that type of thing. And they were describing it really well. And I remember in the, in the place was packed of all the breakouts. That was the one everybody was at and people were on the floor and around the, I remember watching two young ladies on the other side of the room. And one of them spoke up and said, okay, if I described that to my sponsor, they would say no way. But what they meant was no way on your own in early stages. Should you try that? And the whole idea, again, 
of a sponsor being what I would call a sanctuary. Uh, sanctuary has at least two elements. It's safe, but it also provides the elements for growth. No, uh, Sanctuary is no good if it's just safe. It has to have the elements of growth. And uh, over time, I began to see that when I'm sponsoring a man, that I actually become a sanctuary, and it's a place they can learn intimacy in a safe place, maybe for the first time. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here when you are learning how to accept the negative emotions that have underlied these patterns all of our life, and how do I do that in a way that's both safe and effective? Okay, so that was that was a big – okay, go ahead. The, the key thing I, I, I would stress there is uh, – staying really present in your body during this process. And the, the acceptance comes from is a body sin acceptance of the sensation that's involved. So, you know, oftentimes all the person who is sitting with you, your sponsor or spiritual director, uh, you just, who is there and can sense when you're getting out of your body, just to bring you back, feel your feet on the floor, Get in touch with your breath. Uh, if if you have somebody to help continually bring you back with those things, then you can go through whatever the experience is in a way that's going to allow it to break up and begin to uh, have that psychic structure be less controlling in your life. Yeah, as you said earlier, it opens us up to the grace of God in a in a way yes. that we didn't understand before, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, this idea of energy, um, I remember early in recovery, you know, my sponsor used to talk about, you'll hear this a lot in the group, right? Well, if, if you just learn to take the same energy that you had in thinking about, anticipating, and then going through with your addictive behavior or use, he said, just think of the power of that energy actually flowing towards you in recovery. And you're saying that, and you're just saying it and breaking it down in three different ways, Right. Okay. All right. So be aware of your patterns of find a way to pause so that I think of James, right? When we talk about the pause, be quick to listen, uh, slow to speak and slow to do something stupid. You know, that's the way I think of it. That's the way I think. I mean, I don't know. I got this weird brain that goes from scripture to 12 steps over to Enneagram and then back. So bear with me on that. Uh, So that's, that's kind of our pause. Okay. So we quit creating messes. We don't create create quite as many messes, quite as many suffer unnecessary sufferings for ourselves and others. So we've got less amends to make in the future and less things we have to forgive, right? So we, we we're working through awareness and then acceptance. And then there's another shift. Does the system provide a way that positive decision values can then become part of your emotional system? Okay, that's probably a sentence people have not, many people are like, what are you talking about? So we talked about acceptance of the negative emotions, the fearful, angry, resentful, shame emotions. But then the shift is, can you begin in your adult uh, wise decision-making process, can you develop this thing that brings positive decision values into your emotional system? And right here, I think what you and I are talking about in an ancient form is what in the last 20 years has become called emotional intelligence or EQ. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, and I think, you know, the most predominant value there uh, that is talked about in recovery is gratitude. 
Tell us more. Well, you know, there, there needs to be this way in which uh, we, we allow ourselves to experience the, the positive emotional value of what's coming out of our, our, our growth process and our decision process. And so often the one which is most meaningful and, and certainly so reinforced in the rooms is, is gratitude and, and gratitude is, uh, an emotional experience of, of being thankful for just being alive and breathing, even though you're suffering through something at the same time. And, uh, you know, we, when we see reality kind of clearly and, you know, the, the big book refers to God in a couple of places, I think is the great reality. Uh, and when we see reality clearly, we, we are intensely aware of both the, the suffering that occurs in life from an ego perspective because of our attachments and aversions and, at the same time, we are aware of the, just the enchantment of life, that it is such a beautiful uh, experience to be having, and, and gratitude naturally arises from that. Gratitude arises from the experience of truth, beauty, or goodness. All of those are uh, states of experience that lead to this way in which we connect with the fact that we're alive and and here and get to have this experience. Yeah. Well, again, I appreciate the way you connected it back to the three centers or to the truth, beauty, and goodness that, that any of those, any one of those threes can actually reconnect us to ourself and to God and to gratitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I always talk to folks about uh, the idea of gratitude and humility, that it's kind of like a cycle that gratitude leads to humility and humility leads back to gratitude. And and it's a, it's a life cycle. Does that make sense? Yes. And I would reinforce the fact that I think there are three kinds of gratitude that correspond to those three centers. There's the gratitude from knowing the truth, from experience, the truth of God being in your life. And, you know, and and there's the gratitude that comes from beauty of just seeing the sunset and, and wow, I'm just grateful I get to see this beautiful cosmic thing happening on the horizon. And then there's gratitude that comes from, from goodness of whether you're serving soup in the soup kitchen or whether you're being served in the soup kitchen, you know, the goodness of, yeah. of what another human being is doing. Wow. And, and gratitude comes out of that goodness. That's powerful. I really appreciate you saying it that way. Um, I'm thinking back through some of my own step work um, and working a gratitude list. And you and I had a discussion about this. I think one time I was like, I don't, I don't know how many gratitude lists I've done writing those things down. And you, you were like, well, you know, art, you know, for a head person, you might need to figure out how to connect gratitude to your body or to your heart. I'm like, well, duh, why don't I think of that? And that really helped me a lot because as a mental person, the gratitude list seemed to have limited effect on me, writing them down. It did have an impact at times, but it kind of got old. 
And until you said, have you done anything to bring the gratitude into your body, to ground it, or do you do anything through the heart, through beauty, to, 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 to make it more real, that really helped me a lot. Well, you know, uh, particularly for, for folks who, according to their type, tend to be overly heart-protected, uh, one of the ways to begin to open that up is through some kind of devotional practices. <clears throat> and <clears throat> that could be as, as simple as, as lighting a candle uh, or some way that you, you allow yourself to create this sacred space that is a heart kind of space in which your, your heart is more open and you're physically bodily present. Yeah. You see it, you see it in, in, uh, religious traditions across the world where, you know, people will bring flowers to the altar or there'll be other things in which they are, uh, engaging. Uh, I remember one time being, uh, on this little island in Greece, it it might have been Patmos. I think I wanted to go Ooh, see where John, John, John was, yeah. had his revelation, you know. And I would often in these little villages just wander into the churches, uh, and of course it was a Greek Orthodox church, and it was just covered with these icons and uh, you know paintings and just all these religious uh, objects of beauty. And as I sat there in a kind of a back row, just trying to absorb the, the space up front, right near the altar was this icon of, of Jesus. And it was a, uh, a like a, a life-size silver figure with the face of Jesus painted in the, in the, in the silver, in the center of the silver figure. And as I sat there, I noticed uh, first there was this woman who came into the church that had one of her shopping bags, just like she was out shopping. And she goes up and kisses the icon, mm. turns around, walks out of the church. A little later, 10 minutes later, a guy who's dressed like a postman comes in, goes up, kisses the icon, goes back out of the church. So here are these devotional practices that are just part of their ordinary life, which are going to bring this beauty and heart opening uh, to these people as they, as they go through their lives. So having some kind of devotional practice is often a very meaningful way for the heart to begin to open. And we all have barriers uh, around our heart, ways in which in childhood or otherwise we did not receive love or, or had that perception and experience. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, just as you said that, I mean, basically, you're kissing the face of Jesus. Yeah, and, yeah, and so it's 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 body is is involved, and you know, all through scriptures, uh, both Old and New Testament, there seems to be a lot of talk about how important the body actually is. The body I gave to you, right? And then Hebrews yeah. talks about that again, right? Christianity is a very body religion. But we, yeah. well, we moved away from it when the head got, especially after the Reformation and the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment, I think, therefore, I am. And, heck, I, I seven didn't have a chance, right? 
five, sixes, and sevens, we didn't have a chance, did we? Yeah, the age of enlightenment was our age. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Here we are. I was unconsciously doing it, but my mind was taking over. Everything I processed was through the mind and got stuck in there, it seemed like, most of the time. Yeah. All right. Okay, so uh, this is, gosh, I could we could go on forever. I want to make sure we at least get through the five. And so we've, we've done, okay, got to become aware. We've got acceptance. Then the movement into... Uh, how do we begin to shift to where not just accepting the negative emotions that have always been driving our patterns, but also how do we begin the shift toward bringing the positive emotions into the system on a regular basis, right? In in uh, recovery, they sometimes call it reframing the trigger, that type of thing. But then ongoing, does the system provide in the midst of change, which life is always changing and having to make new decisions, does it provide a way to develop discernment ongoing? So talk a little bit about that one. Well, I think that is just the kind of uh, uh, cumulative way in which we begin to set these patterns of awareness, acceptance, and uh, action and ongoing in our, in our lives. Uh, so you might say that the devotional practices that I referred to in this rural Greek church, uh, might be a way to bring discernment. In other words, uh, on an everyday basis, is there some way as a head type, I'm really getting in touch with my heart. Am I really being grounded in my body? And so that's, what's going to lead It's the integration of those which is going to lead to greater discernment in my life. Beautiful. So like in one of the traditions I am, and I've mentioned Dr. Joe Howell to you before. In fact, I got to get y'all together because you're both sixes. He's not a counterphobic, but you're both sixes. You're both in your seventies. You both have meant a lot to me, teaching, mentoring, taking me deeper, that type of thing. And uh, in our uh, intensives, when we're off site, with a cohort that's kind of moving through the Enneagram and consciousness studies, Joe founded the Institute for conscious being. And the reminder is always, okay, it's, we're not here to promote the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a tool to stay conscious, right? Uh, Aware, as you said. So uh, one of the things that uh, we'll do in that particular iteration of Enneagram work is the living Enneagram in which we'll have someone pose a question and then nine different types will take the question, absorb it, and if and act as if it's theirs, which generally it usually has been or will be, right? And then they approach it either from their holy idea or, or perhaps their virtue, and then they meditate on it and then give a response. And then go and it bounces around the arrows of the Enneagram, hopefully this time in the more healthy direct in the integrating instead of the disintegrating. And then the person is free to accept or take what's given just like in a 12 step group, right? Hey, we're going to, we're going to throw this out there, but it, you take what is good for you and leave the rest. We're okay with that. Right. And so that's kind of what you're describing here in that's a specific way of kind of getting wisdom, but also the idea as a spiritual director or, or a good coach is that we want to help the individual grow in their own ability to generate this presence that's in the body, this uh, uh, emotions of the heart and the thinking of the head in an integrated way where they begin to coach and teach themselves 
uh, quicker and they don't need us as much. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Although I never, I don't think you ever, uh, get to the place where you don't need uh, a spiritual director. Uh, you know, in fact, I remember one time asking my spiritual director, uh, you know, did these people who were really uh, bishops and so forth and all in the church, did they need spiritual directors? And And his response was, you know, they probably needed them even more. I, I agree totally. I think the higher you go in authority and responsibility, the more vulnerability, humility, and gratitude you have to have in bringing – you better bring somebody along with you or it doesn't go well. Yeah, the more easily it is for that false self-ego to attach to the thought that I know a lot or, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm being really helpful or – Whatever. Yeah, yeah, or in that eight nine one in that center of power and control, right? Or in that two yeah. three four, the image consciousness, right? Yeah. I'll, I'll perform, right? I'll give, or I'm unique, or whatever. Or in that five six seven in that security survival, I better be really super competent in something, or I don't have a way to survive in the world, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm with you. I don't. I don't think you ever outgrow. In fact, I think I used to. I remember going to. Uh, a Celebrate Recovery 12-step summit one time. I remember Rick Warren talking about, look, a lot of you are in this room simply because you God has already brought you through some of the toughest stuff you're ever – but he's only done that because you're going to encounter more and you're going to be a guide this time. And you need to bring that guide with you the more you do this. And I'm afraid part of what's happened in our – traditions in 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 some of our denominations and churches or in businesses is that the higher you go the less accountability you've got i'm afraid that's true yeah and you know it is the uh the buddhist idea of the fact that we're all always struggling beginners is very yeah. helpful yeah spiritual kindergarten right the 12 steps spiritual yeah. kindergarten you must come as a child Jesus said, and we don't want you to stay childish, but we do want you to stay childlike, right? Yep. As you said earlier, beauty, mystery, wonder, the curiosity of this beautiful life, how good it is. Yeah. All right. So do you think we adequately cover, not that we could cover all five uh, in its totality. That's what you have to, that's what you have to live out, right? What else would you say about any of that? Well, I would just kind of tie it all together by getting back to those two different threads that I mentioned to start with that are always uh, important to recognize in anybody uh, on their spiritual path, on me or when I'm working with someone or have been working with someone. And that is, you know, how is the awareness and acceptance of my underlying ego false self pattern that has protected me in the world? And, you know, you... You've probably been to meetings where you've heard people say, thank goodness I drank for 20 years, otherwise I'd have killed myself. You know? Yes, yes, or somebody else. <laughs> yeah. So so our ego structure has a utility. It's there for a reason. And so that's why just the acceptance of it without being too self-critical is so important. But at the same time that we develop awareness and acceptance, we've got to have the hard practices and the practices of being present in goodness in our body 
that are going to keep us in touch with the underlying trust that is, is safe to be a human being in this world. And uh, it is this trust which then allows us to accept more and, you know, they, they flow together. And without both of them together, uh, our recovery can get stuck in, in some particular little place where we're, we're overly spiritual or we're, or we're overly in, attached to our own uh, place of where we think we understand stuff. Yeah, I, I remember a couple of years into an awakening. There was a vital spiritual awakening for me that came out of nowhere. Um, and I remember floating on that for a couple of years, <laughs> but then I remember waking up again, uh, I relapsed. It wasn't a relapse in my old sexual addiction or even the drinking. But what I realized that I'd gone back to sleep, the ego had gotten back in charge and I no longer was a grateful prodigal. I'd now become the cynical older brother. Oh my gosh. It was a different kind of relapse. Yeah. 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 And, yep. the, and that just, I mean, that hit me hard, hit me hard. And thankfully there was enough people that saw some of it. They could pick at it a little bit and see there were, there were warning signs, you know, before people would say or look different, but because I've, um, you know, I, I'm not got that seven way of out talking everybody or le- or leaning way into the heavy eight wing sometime where I'll overpower people in ways they, they kind of backed off from me. And the other unconscious thing that many sevens do is they basically don't know they are teaching everybody to experience them as not needing help. You ever, I'm, I'm sure you've run into that, right? Yeah. I didn't know my whole life. I was training everybody I was around to think I was happy and okay. Why would we need to check on art? Right. Well, he looks fine. Yeah. Right. That's, that is such a big heart protection right there. Yeah. But I love the way you phrase that about, you know, moving from the prodigal son to the cynical older brother. Yeah, great, great, grateful prodigal. It was fi- it was fine to be a prodigal because everybody was kind of applauding the prodigal, right, in recovery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and the next thing, as, it, as if the hero of Luke 15 was the prodigal, right, <laughs> instead of Jesus, right? Yeah, it, I'm like, it's fine to be a prodigal, but then I realized, oh, my gosh, I've shifted by going, my relapse was shifting into the cynical older brother. Yeah. And, and that was another bottom for me, but thankfully I, I didn't have to stay in there long and I bounced back up a little quicker that time. Um, okay, gosh, we got to close. I, I, think, Go I think that's important for everybody to feel too, Art, is that uh, no years of recovery, no days of recovery are ever wasted. Nope. Nope. I remember a guy one time came into a meeting and was so sad. He was going to, you know, he just received a chip for five years or something, maybe the, the month before. And it was like, all of this has been wasted and, you know, giving the chip back and all that. I'm like, no, you didn't, you don't lose any of that ground. God does not give up ground. Don't, don't that every bit of this is going to be usable, redeemable. Now how far we've gone down the ladder, right? It, there's something there that can be redeemed and used in my life and somebody else's if I'll allow it. But if the ego gets in charge, oh boy, here we go again. Yeah. yeah. How's yeah. that working for you? Well, not very well. <laughs> you may want to stop. All right. So, um, guys, we got a few minutes left, um, before you and Ronnie got to get out of here as a seven, I'd talk all day. 
Um, but you, you folks are putting structure on me, so I'm, I'm going to feel the f- negative feeling. And, and you know, I'm <laughs> by the way, Don, have you ever seen the movie, the documentary Cracked Up uh, about Daryl Hammond, the uh, famous Saturday Night Live comedian? Um, if you get a chance, I highly recommend it to everybody out there. It is a hard story to listen to and to watch but it is a uh, true, beautiful, and good one. And it will involve a lot of what we've talked about, uh, recovery, but also uh, the body keeps the score. Uh, he, he finally lucked into somebody that understood that and a therapist that began working with him on that. But it's a, it's a great documentary. It's hard, but I think you would love it. It would really uh, help teach, reinforce by that one man's story and his journey what you've been talking about here today and what you've lived yourself. Uh, I'm wondering, Don, I know you've got some particular health problems that make it really hard for you, especially given the last two years with the pandemic. So even in good times, even without a pandemic, you've got to be pretty careful. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering, uh, we're talking down here in the South, (laughs) in Birmingham, there's these different voices have been talking lately about putting together an uh, Enneagram and recovery conference type thing um, where we bring the best of those synergies together to kind of do what you used to do when you used to go on the road to these different locations, right? And you would do a one or two day, I think two day type thing where you would take them through yeah. this and then try to show them and then hopefully give them uh, not only the information, but the inspiration and maybe the impetus to take that and do it locally after you left. Is it, is that right? Is that describe yeah. it? Well, yes. and, and then, um, uh, so I'm wondering if we might could talk you into, uh, coming to Birmingham here in the next year. Is that, is there any possibility of that? Uh, Art, I just don't know. It's a, <clears throat> excuse me. It's an alluring idea. And, uh, well, I'm all about alluring as sevens. I love to, <laughs> I love to allure people, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'd have to, we'd have to get a little further down the pandemic road and, yep. and, and I would have to consider some other health stuff that's going on. So. Well, how about this? Then we'll hold that right there for right. We'll, we'll set it over there with non, non-attachment to the particular outcome at a specific time. <laughs> And I'll practice my recovery and my enneagram work, but maybe, maybe, maybe at worst we could uh, zoom you in uh, when we design the conference. Uh, I think that would be marvelous for people. Well, let's let's keep talking about it down the little road. Okay, all right, yeah. I will. I'm not going to let you off the hook. So uh, we got uh, a couple of minutes. What would you like to share in just the last, I mean, I talk a lot and I would like to be quiet for a minute and maybe let you just share something that's on your heart or your body or your mind or all, or all three. Well, I, I think kind of pandemic related, um, you know, uh, we have kind of lived through a little bit of kind of, uh, more monastic time frames of being um, by ourselves or with our partners uh, 
you know, not as much social contact in a lot of ways over the past year. More for, uh, more forced uh, solitude, uh, maybe a little bit more stillness, maybe a little yeah. bit more silence, right? Yes. Yeah. So I think it's a real opportunity to um, see how you have experienced those things. And uh, a lot of people have, you know, negative ideas about solitude and silence. And, uh, but yet they are the places where our own path to understanding our interior being and, and how that interior uh, beingness is held by God uh, to have deep experience of those. That's, that's an opportunity the pandemic has, has given us. And uh, we do have the thing of Zoom to fall back on to share experiences about that with other people, which is really, really good. But I, I do think that uh, the development of an interior life with God, as you understand him, is, is a really important aspect of uh, where we are because of the pandemic and other things right now. And it certainly is something that should unfold naturally in your recovery. Um, and, and so if time and space has given you the opportunity to, to dig into that, uh, I would certainly suggest that, that people try to do that. One thing you could perhaps do, there's a, a thing I think is on YouTube called The Big Silence. Are you familiar with that OR? Just a little bit. Yeah, somebody mentioned it the other day. It's, uh, I'm not sure who actually produced it, but basically it's several people who are strangers to each other who, who go to this monastery in England and spend 10 days there in solitude and silence. And, and then share their experience about what happens to them. So uh, there is so much opportunity for this really rich uh, interior growth that will help us with whatever storms that life puts in our way uh, from practices that open us up more to that uh, interior development. So if if that's what reality is giving us the opportunity right now, you know, why not lean into it? And uh, I think that's a way that we can try to appreciate the gift or have gratitude for what is, it has been over the past year or two very difficult. I was going to try to add to that, but I'm not going to. I think I'm going to give you final say. I think that was true, beautiful, and good. And Don, again, thanks so much just for today, the time you took out to do this. What a blessing for me personally, what I think will be for every listener. And um, I'm, I'm going to keep working on you to get you down here in, in some form or fashion. And uh, I love you. Thank you so much. Love you, Art. Great being with you. Say goodbye yeah. to Ronnie. Ronnie, say goodbye. Ronnie bye. said bye. Uh, Thanks, Ronnie. Uh, Love you, Don. Thank you. Take care. Till next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Take folks. Thanks for joining us here on this episode, this very special episode of How's That Working For You. See you next time. <laughs>